This programme features the work of Joe Kennedy, an environmental sound artist whose work I really admire. Joe very kindly agreed to discuss her work with me, so this piece features the conversation that I had with her, plus excerpts from some of her compositions. These initial sounds are from Life in the Rain, a composition of Joe's from 2019, which explored the sonic qualities of rainfall. Now you can hear recordings of a dawn chorus that Joe made near her home in Northern England in April 2020.
Well, I'm Joe, Joe Kennedy. My uh, website's www.joekennedysound.com, quite simple. And um, on that website, you can find out a little bit about me and what I do. Um, so I'm, I guess I started off um, my work life in the environmental sector and I spent over a couple of decades in the environmental sector working as uh, environmental regulator for the National Rivers Authority and then the Environment Agency. And then um, I guess I got to a point where I felt like I needed to maybe explore the creative side of things. So um, I, I left my job and I went off to study creative music technology. Um, um, I graduated from a, from a degree in creative music technology in 2019. And since then, I've been trying to make my way um, as a freelancer work I guess I just kind of generally describe myself as working creatively with sound um, so I do a variety of things whatever I can do to make a bit of money really so technical work like editing podcasts um, doing live sound for small events um, running courses on audio for people I guess um, one of my main interests is trying to um, combine my environmental interests and my environmentalism with my audio work. So I'm particularly interested in kind of um, doing activities that connect people with nature. So using the, the technical or creative skills that I've got in terms of audio and sound and combining them with my environmentalism to come up with experiences or things that connect people with nature. Um, and I guess my main motivation there is to try and kind of maybe nudge people's behaviour a bit towards being a bit more pro-environmental and whereas I used to try and do that as an environment as a regulator with a stick and the law I, I kind of think well sod that not interested in that anymore I'm going to try and be more imaginative about things and engage people maybe at a more emotional level um, and maybe maybe that's the way to go. There's a written piece you published it's on your blog, and I think you did some articles, and um, I've got the title here, Initiating Ecological Change Through Sound Art, a review and short manifesto. That was really cool to come up with a, a manifesto. And what I've got here in front of me is this, uh, this diagram that you created, which I really like, which really tried to you know, address this question about how do we actually achieve impact uh, through doing sound art. In other words, how can we make the world a, a better place, really? It's what it comes down to. And you've got these um, these three different circles here overlapping, knowledge, connectedness, and structural support. And then you've got various things um, connected to that. And I just wonder whether you could just briefly summarise what your what your conclusions were, having researched this as a, as a topic. Yeah, so, I mean, it came from my... What I was talking about earlier, like, how can I 
kind of merge my environmentalism with my sound art. And I'm really interested. I'm really interested in like in environmental activism and how how artists might be environmental activists. And so it was, I guess, logical for me to think about well, I'm doing sound art. So how could sound artists nudge people into more pro-environmental behaviour through their work? And that there have been people who've, who've talked about wanting to um, change people's behaviour. Like, I think Hildegard Westerkamp talked about mm. it. Um, and I thought, yeah, but if, you just, if you're listening to a piece of sound art, what is the likelihood of you then going away and thinking differently and changing your environmental behaviour? I mean, is that, yeah. is that realistic to assume that someone's going to do that? <laughs> and so I thought I'd investigate... What might if if that is what you want to do? What's the what's the most l- likeliest way of you being able to make that happen? And um, it led me to look at different pieces of ecological sound art and kind of, I suppose, critique them in a way, and also to delve more deeply into well, how does pro-environmental behaviour happen? How do people change their behaviours? And um, I looked at, not not specifically in relation to sound art, but just generally, how do people, mm. what what is it that will lead someone to change their behaviour? And um, I looked a bit of it at environmental modelling and behavioural modelling and like old older views in the 1970s that really what you needed to do was to uh, give people some knowledge mm. that would raise their awareness. Then they ch- then they change their behaviour and sort of automatically. Yeah, 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 and that's kind of been dismissed as far too simplistic. Um, and I found another model, much more recent one, um, by Colmus and Ageman, and it's in my blog. But it's it's mm. it's really really complicated. And what it basically, in a nutshell, what it's saying is. There's loads of internal, like personal and external, like societal or cultural or economic factors that that present barriers for people um, in terms of being able to change. Um, and it's it's quite difficult. There's lots of things that will stop people changing. So not just the, say the external barriers, maybe it's going to cost more to, if I want to buy that product and I haven't got that much money, so I'm not. I'm buying the cheaper one that is still degrading the environment a bit more. But internally it might be, well, it's only me. If, if I make this change, that's, that's not, you know, it's just me. I'm, it's make, it yeah. makes no difference. Or, or the world's doomed anyway. What's the point? Yeah. yeah. Um, so it was looking at all those types of things. Um, but one thing that it it came up with was, and that another area of work that I then learned about called connectedness to nature came up with, was that this idea that if you give people knowledge, you can't expect that just because they know how many tonnes of carbon they might save if they turn mm. all their light bulbs off or how much water they might be able to save if they turn their stop their taps dripping they're going to do those things it's not enough to give people knowledge and raise their awareness what you 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 need some of that but what you really need is for people to care they need to care about nature 
And, and you view that falls within your connectedness, doesn't it? That's right, that's right. So the connectedness bit is all about, well, maybe if, if people feel a bit more like they're part of nature, not separate from nature, we, we are nature, that, that make, makes you care more about what's going on with it. And the, and the research also is saying that the best way to get people to care about nature is for them to have an emotional or an affective experience. And the best way to do that is through the arts. Mm. It's not by giving people facts and figures and knowledge. It's (laughs) it's by doing something creative with them. Yeah. So I thought, yeah, great, there you go. That's it. There's your your manifesto right there. That's it. That's it. So then thinking about, well, okay, sound art... I th- that then made me think, well, actually, I, I think maybe the people themselves should be the artists and the artists should just be a facilitator because, you know, maybe it's about having an immersive, as an immersive experience as possible, not being a passive audience, yeah, exactly. m- audience member. Maybe it's about going outside and collecting your own recordings or listening into the environment you making field recordings, doing your own compositions, making your own sound walks, and so is this where your sort of training and workshop is? Is that where they fit it's, in? Yeah, I mean, this is where I've been trying to steer my work, I suppose, and I think it's an area that I still, I still really want to, want to develop um, because I haven't really had a chance to do much of that type of work yet. But yeah. it's about taking people outside. Um, like I did a nice little thing in the summer with a prime uh, group of primary school kids, where we um, it was part of their summer school, just so just four mornings, and we made a noisy nature podcast. Brilliant. So um, I went into their school with some recording equipment, and we, we started off with a little sound walk, just went on a little sound walk around the school, and then we listened to some sounds that I'd recorded and I had to guess where are we and we, we had some different examples of like urban and mm. natural environments and just get them kind of like thinking about sound and not just using their eyes to <clears throat> explain their experiences but what, what are they experience what can they what can they receive through their ears and then you know it was just really go outside mess about in your school grounds see what nature we can find and let's have a discussion and let's let's make some recordings best of luck with implementing your manifesto i mean i, I just loved it because there's very few people who have actually thought through what needs to be done and how one might do it but but i'm also interested in how it's sort of transpiring through your work you know how you're sort of realizing it so i'd love to talk a bit about your podcast your your nature tripping podcast i've spent many happy hours listening to all your shows yeah so i mean i got into it because i i guess i finished my degree and i was kind of kicking about <laughs> didn't have any work to do i thought oh my goodness this is a bit bleak i'm gonna do something how about i make a podcast and and kathy um kathy does a lot of bird survey work for the British Trust for Ornithology. So I think our first episode was actually based around one of her um, wading bird surveys out on out on Morecambe Bay. So we just went out with the recording equipment and the dog and bumbled along and I, I kind of like, we kind of made it up as we went along, Adrian. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, 
I get um, that sense, but that you know, <laughs> gives it sort of immediacy, doesn't it? That's what I like. Yeah, there was an angle grinder going off there in was. the background. <laughs> <laughs> the dog was scrabbling. Yeah, and but then that came up. I think that's become part of our signature in that we're we're not as with many other. Um, audio shows trying to mask out yeah. the external world we're trying to bring it in yeah. we're trying to we're trying to have those sounds uh, very much as part of the podcast um, so we, we like to leave time for people just to listen to what's going on around and us shut up and oh there's a little cold tip and there's a little blue tip or whatever yeah. um, just make space so People have described it as kind of slow radio, or it's really good to go. It's really good to go to sleep too. You know, I actually have. <laughs> yeah, but, that, but yeah. it really works for that. Yeah. yeah. So, um, and I, think, I don't think we have any expectations that it'll ever have a large audience or will generate a revenue from it. But I think we both feel like it's a really worthwhile thing to do because it aligns so much with our our values and our interests and it gives me something to do when I've got mm. sometimes not much work coming in um you know the, oh I'll make let's make a podcast what should we choose next it's and, and of course I always get something out of it because that's what I was well, going to um, ask yeah over lockdown we decided let's do a series on learning bird song and Kathy knows knows a lot of bird song i don't so but in the course of i didn't but in the course of going out and just listening in i learned so much about bird song and it was a really nice way it was a really nice nice kind of element of lockdown for me in what was you know a, a hard time to be able to go out and just listen into the the environment and like it's a it's a kind of mindful thing for me i'm, I'm mm. tried meditation i can't really do that i might I'm, I'm not very good at it but if i put my headphones on and go out with my recording gear and just sit somewhere yes i think i can get that same kind of calmness that people who meditate experience you know, so, i think that really comes across i think it really does i think we're listening to you listening i think that's what it is right right yeah yeah yeah, I felt yeah. that very strongly. It's because um, it's attentive. It's not passive. It's although it, you know we're listening to the sounds you're hearing, but I think it's because you're sitting there intently listening to them that somehow comes across. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it gave you that increased connectedness yourself, then. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And of course, it would be the, the, coming coming back to people going out themselves. You know. When you share when you share a field recording with someone, um, it's nice for them to listen to. But actually, what you've got in you is the experience of actually being in that place at that time and feeling the essence of the place and the smells and the sounds and how whether you were cold or warm or whatever. You've got that memory in your head, and it's it's you know. So I think some of my favourite field recordings are probably associated with the experience I was yeah. I was having having at the time which is of course interesting and, for us as listeners because we weren't there <laughs> I know but somehow yeah. you know they're very vivid I, I, I find them very vivid and so we're kind of there with you in our minds <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that's great part of what I really loved is how creative you've been so I love that one for example where you're you're both in a tent 
on the oh, allotment yes. <laughs> <laughs> listening. I mean, obviously having difficulty keeping a straight face as you're doing it, but nonetheless, what a brilliant way to, to listen to birds. And it really worked, didn't it? It was pitch black and it was freezing because it was winter dawn. I think it was early in the year, winter dawn chorus or something, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, of course, we couldn't see anything, so it really was, what is that yeah. bird? Yeah. And, and I think for I Cathy think... that was a bit traumatic because she was yes. you know, used to seeing the bird. <laughs> And I would say, well, no, no, this is really good. This is my world, Cathy. Exactly. <laughs> but again, another creative thing you did was micing up the bird feeders, I thought. Yeah. So you both sat in, indoors, I think, not even outside, but you're watching your bird feeder in your garden. And then you've overlaid the actual live sound yeah. of the birds feeding. I thought that was magical. So so well done on, the, on, the, on these podcasts. But I think one of the other threads that comes out, it's the more political element your environmentalist colors mm, shine yeah, through and yeah. those i really yeah. wanted to just touch on that because you did a, a great show about grouse moors which yeah. you're, you're, you live right next to one don't you this is such a, a contentious yeah. issue now in in conservation in britain and um, it's right there on your doorstep and i yeah. couldn't get over this amazing contrast as you walk up there there's this fantastic richness of bird life and other wildlife on the fringes of the grass moor just a bit down downhill but when you get mm. onto the moors themselves which are right on the on the top of these uplands that they're almost completely silent because of mm. the way they're being managed and yeah and basically a lot of animals being killed by the uh, by oh the it's game. awful it's awful it's outrageous and um yeah i mean the 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 land is being i mean when i first moved up into the pennines or even when I first saw the Pennines back maybe in the early 90s, late 80s, I thought, gosh, what a beautifully bleak landscape mm. this is, driving on the M62 across from Manchester to Leeds, across Saddleworth Moor, and this brown peat and st this stark beauty. And I am kind of drawn to those types of quite melancholic environments. And... Um, so it appealed to me, and I had the, I kind of romanticised the environment, I suppose, in some ways. But the more I've found out about the environment and why it looks like it looks, the sadder I just, I, yeah. I just, or angrier even I feel about the landscape that I live in now. And it has, like you say, got these areas of these wooded valley sides, which w would have been always too hard to cultivate. Yes. So you've got a more naturally, you've got kind of oak um, and some scrub uh, in, in there and a, a richer ecology. But once you get up onto the top, so a lot of the land is either used for sheep, mm. so it's rough pasture for sheep farming, or it's part of a grouse shooting estate. And um, so what's, what's happening there is they're concentrating on growing heather and making sure that there are fresh shoots every year uh, to try and maximise food for grouse. Um, but they're also removing as many of the mm. predators to also maximise grouse populations. Yeah. So they're playing massively with the ecology of the they've to it's a totally man-made environment um, and a lot of the small mammals 
raptors. Yeah. Just not there. Yeah. They've been eradicated. Yeah. As I say, that really comes over in this in this really yeah. striking silence. Also on the grouse moors, we are seeing the impact of climate change in, in the valley. So we're having... I live in the Calder Valley. It's very steep-sided and uh, in the heavy storms that we now get, um, oh, yeah, we've been flooded several times over the last decade in this valley and there's just been a massive amount of money spent on flood protection um, or flood risk mitigation da- downstream from um, where I live. Yeah. And part of the argument um, is we need to we need to change the land management practices on the top. We need to create environments where water is absorbed and doesn't run off. Yeah. So do things yeah. like really protect the peat and rewild areas. Um, and that's not really compatible at the moment with the way the land's managed at the moment. Yeah. So there's several, on several levels, it's all very wrong <laughs> up on top. But to come back to your messages of hope, and you touched on it there, didn't you? And uh, you've actually done pieces exploring this this concept of rewilding and actually almost sonic yeah. signature, how, how a rewilded landscape might you know, it's gone back to nature, what it might sound like. And I think people are getting very, you know, it's becoming a real movement around rewilding, isn't it? Particularly in the uplands. And Yes, it is. I think climate change changes everything, doesn't it? So here's a really practical thing that can really make a difference mm. both to climate change and to wildlife and maybe improve things like the uh, water runoff and reduce flood risk. So it's a very, it sounds to me like a real win-win and uh, it's great to hear that you're excited about it too. Yeah, and I think um, there is a lot more interest. In fact, some of the, the local water companies have started doing things mm. like they've banned the burning of heather on their estates uh, where those that land has been used for grouse shooting and they're putting in schemes to try and um, retain peat and preserve the peat and restore yeah. the peat. So putting in sphagnum... Um, New sphagnum plants and kind of trying to get mm. the peat that that kind of recolonization to go on by these boggy plants that will basically act like sponges, soak up the water, stop it running off down the hillsides. So there is a, there is stuff being done, and yeah, I mean it would actually be great. I've not done it, but it'd be great to do a kind of geolocated sound walk up on the moors where people walk to different spots and maybe hear what the moors could sound like like. if they'd been rewilded and maybe have some narrative from people and the sounds of... uh, There are, there are, ironically, in certain spots, there are quite a lot of endangered birds, like the ground-nesting birds, like curlews, Yes, they like it up there as well because there aren't any predators. Right. <laughs> yeah, ironically. Yeah, yeah. Um, but but they need those they, wet they, meadows, they need, don't they? They need that's that wet right. Person. That's right. Um, and that's I think that's something that the people like the Moorland Association hang on to. Oh well, we're we're providing yeah. valuable habitats for species that are endangered. But the reality is. The, the ecological system is so out of kilter that we would have had we would yeah. have curlews in lots of other places around Britain. Exactly. Well, I mean, having heard your podcast, I uh, 
I sort of poked around a bit and found there's, there's actually organisations now. There's one called Wild Moors that's entirely dedicated to rewilding yeah. moorland and uh, making these exact yeah. arguments. So I was very inspired by that.
Uh, and you've done this great series of works on your local river, which is the, the Colne. Yes, isn't the, it? yeah, the Colne. That's over in Huddersfield. Um, but I, I got a commission from an arts organisation called AME in Huddersfield to do an exhibition, and I decided I was going to walk down a river. So the, the river that runs through Huddersfield is the Colne. Um, so, yeah, I spent um, some time walking down the River Colne. It's 12, 12 miles long. And, yeah. you know, I was, I was interested there in... Um, it, was, it was kind of sparked by finding out about a New Zealand r- river called the Vanganui and yeah. the Maori people living in that river catchment um, say we are the river, the river is us. And it's this thing about we're not separate yeah. from nature, we are nature. They have, and, yeah. and they've been able to enshrine in legislation a law that protects the river. It treats the river as if it was a human being. It gives, gives the river the same rights as a human being. And that kind of struck me as kind of amazing that, you know, in New Zealand, there were people who actually felt that connected to their environment, that, that their river was one of them. Um, mm-hmm. And it was... So I kind of thought, well, how do, how do we in the, in the West think about our rivers? And, and my case study was kind of the River Colne, so I walked down the River Colne, um, yeah. thinking and experiencing the River Colne and what was going on on the River Colne. That was the one, one of the things that really struck, well, two of the things you mentioned there, the liminal space thing was really interesting because what I found was I was in this space that wasn't there for anything, you know, it wasn't, I was scrabbling down the banks. I, I kind of was trying to follow or be as close to the river as I could all the way down and I would find myself in these... Um, wild areas I mean you know less than like 20 or 30 meters away there'd be civilization a a nice neat canal towpaths and very manicured gardens and people walking their dogs and jogging but just over the wall a few meters down you could be in this this other world and it was magical it was magical but it was also very freeing it was like I was young again and I was out scrabbling around and it struck me that, God, I don't have that experience in my life very often where I'm, because the space is kind of allowing me to be f- a lot freer because it's not imposing anything on me in terms of what it wants me to do whilst I'm here because it, it, it's not designated for anything. So you're finding that connectedness yeah. again. Yeah, but yeah. like also as you say, um, I got really annoyed with the amount of like restrictions there were, and no entry mm. signs or just fences or walls. The river itself has been so 
restricted and restrained. There's so many places where it, it isn't following its natural course. It's been turned into a straight river with walls up either side because it was used intensively during the Industrial Revolution yeah. for textiles. So they were building mill, mill dams and, yeah, and they would, would have been throwing all their effluent into it as well. So it's... And yet, I mean, I, I suppose I came away in terms of our relationship with rivers, I came away thinking it's really, really paradoxical. I met people like little kids who were actually in the river one summer day. So they'd been spent the, like little scallywags. They'd spent the whole day in the in in the river up to their waists, <laughs> free the range. Kids love it yeah. though, don't they? It's a yeah, playground. Yeah, people like maybe people who were there for some solace, drinking a can of beer or four cans of beer, but just come. That was the place he went to just get some peace to like families with their kids it was a really really important uh, kind of community resource the river in terms of recreational use yeah people would talk about how they love the river they love the river it's where they come we could see people having like really meaningful time at the river yeah we chuck we kind of culverted it over in places we've built these walls we chuck all our waste effluents into it. The amount of litter. I mean, it's really paradoxical, really. Yeah. I mean, I think it's about giving that kind of... I think there's something about the liminal space thing. People, like, you don't want to kind of manage every area. You want to let nature or semi-nature or whatever nature is now have have a place and let people people be in that space. So it doesn't want to be all manicured and fenced and signposts. And you want some of that, but you also want some wildness as well i think we really need that wildness in our in our lives yeah
But the other, the other thing I wanted to talk about in terms of installations, which I think, if I've understood it right, you did in an allotment shed and uh, Corn Creek Corner. I was very excited about that. <laughs> yeah, so that was, um, that was an audiovisual piece, but you have to do it in a shed. You have to go into a shed. I mean, I suppose, like what I was talking about earlier, I want some kind of interactivity to my pieces, and I've not really managed to develop that aspect of things yet. Because what I imagined, um, a kind of shed where you'd go in and the things would happen, you know, like with Arduino, where sensors go off and sounds start happening or you can press buttons um i just didn't have the time or resources to do that but i wanted this kind of little bit of separate space in the gallery where people could go and have an experience um and it it, it in the end it was really sit down and watch this this audiovisual piece about corn crakes and i'm going to take you on a journey so corn crakes i found out a lot about corn crakes um, it used to be all over Britain. So there's kind of medium-sized brown bird, looks a bit like a chicken. Not a terribly exciting-looking bird, but there used to be um, tens of thousands of corncrakes used to arrive every spring into the British countryside, um, have a brood or two, and then fly back to Africa for the winter. So they're migratory species. And in, by the 1990s, they'd kind of vanished. And it was down to the industrialisation of farming. Yeah, and um, they live in kind of... They arrive and they need kind of um, some kind of early cover like nettles or reeds or irises or something like that to land in. And that kind of scrappy land, if it's not productive, it tends to have been got rid of. So their early cover went. And then after that, they might have a brood in the early cover, but they'll want to move into a kind of a, uh, a kind of wet meadowy field area or a grassy field. So they used to live, I think, originally, they used to go to the river plains. I think they found fossils in what would have been uh, the river plains of London of corn crakes. Um, so that would have been their original environment but then when when we developed all those areas they ended up in the in the farmland and that still provided a suitable habitat for them enough shelter and enough food um to breed uh, so however when we started mechanizing the production of grass you know, introducing fertilizers so we could grow grass more quickly and then using large machines to cut really fast where we previously would have used hand scythes uh, they, that, that did for the corn crates because all these little chicks in the field um, just get it chomped yeah, up. Yeah, it's doomed. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, of course, what's special about corn crates too is this amazing sonic thing they do with this fantastic, <laughs> fantastic call that is so striking that uh, they have to issue headphones, don't they? I remember visiting Uist once. Oh, and, right. Uh, right next to all these corn crates and they give all the tourists okay. earmuffs so they can sleep. <laughs> That's how loud they are. I just So it's fantastic because you did these wonderful recordings on... Uh, on Tyree as part of your podcast. Yes, that's right. So th then the installation is about taking a journey to one of the last remaining strongholds. Yeah. There are a few remaining places left right on the north-western edges of the British Isles where we've still got populations of corn crakes and they're trying to 
ensure those populations are, are sustained. Uh, and they, I think they've done some reintroduction work in Norfolk oh, okay. as well now. Uh, yes. Um, so, yeah, we go up, we go on the train across the sea and we end up in Tyree. And then we meet the RSPB officer there, John Bowler, mm. whose job it is to do the annual corn crake census. And he knows all about the life cycle of the corn crakes and yeah. the work that's been done. A lot of research, check, hasn't it? Been? Yes. Yeah, yeah, with the farming community to work out what the corn crakes need and to get those types of measures um, in place on Tyree and some of the other Hebridean islands. And it's really worked. It's it's like they've had up to like 400 yeah, breeding pairs of Tyree. But to do Tyree, that monitoring, so. you've actually got to go out and listen to them, don't you, uh, at night. I was very, yes. very impressed by yes. your dedication there. <laughs> I find if, uh, I kind of just, I did a little... little piece eight minute piece recently on on the corn crake i kind of used this material that i collected over the summer in various ways and the corn crake are kind of the cracks cracks it's a great name yeah runs it's like the soundtrack underneath the whole of you don't hear it all the way through but it was like in my mind that this is a voice. This is a voice in this piece, and it's going to run all the way through. And yeah, I quite like. I quite by. The, I quite like the way it works in that piece yeah. as a kind of its own voice. years ago there were corncrakes in every county they were absolutely everywhere and they would have been a regular maybe not sight but a sound people living in the country they would know concrete or land rails as they were known that's john bowler from the rspb and although we don't have official records it's believed tens of thousands of corncrakes used to migrate north from africa every springtime to spend the summer in the British countryside. They'd have one or two broods of young, then fly back to Africa in September for the winter months. By the 1990s, they'd almost all vanished. But there are a few places in the UK where they managed to hang on. We're going to take a journey to one of these last remaining strongholds. Gaelic for Corn Creek. My sister recalls in the 50s, the later 50s, hearing Corn Creeks. And they must have disappeared after that because although I didn't stay at home, no one ever talked about hearing Corn Creeks. As things became more uh, intensive, particularly after the Second World War, um, people started cutting fields earlier with bigger tractors, faster. Concretes just couldn't keep up with that. Th that rapid industrialization, really, of the landscape is what did, did in for them, but you know, throughout the UK. Yeah. 
Latin noise maker. It's June and we've arrived on the Isle of Tyree in the Inner Hebrides. On the journey here, you heard Jamie MacDonald from the island sharing some old Gaelic names for the corncrake. This is where John Bowler lives too. It's a busy time of year for him. He's out in the middle of the night listening for corncrakes. Every year, it's his job to estimate the size of the breeding corncrake population on the island. This is important ecological data and can be used to track trends over time. Because the birds are so elusive, the best way to find out how many there are is to count the number of calling males during June, which is the peak calling season. The first broods are hatching out uh, and you'll start seeing chicks if you're lucky. Uh, and then the males, this is when they're really going for it. They're really calling. They call from midnight till three just consistently. He's calling to other males to proclaim where he is and to keep them out of his bit. But also he's calling to females. And it's basically saying, yeah, I, you know, if, if there's more females out there, I'm interested. So... How come on Tyree, corncrakes have managed to survive and even thrive? There was a, a very good researcher who still works for us called Dr. Rhys Green, or now Professor Rhys Green, I should say. And he worked very closely on, on the corncrakes to work out exactly what they needed when they come to these islands. So when they first come in uh, mid to late April, having what we call early cover, somewhere they can get into and be safe, find food, but also not be predated is critical. So providing patches of early cover, nettles, iris on Tyree, even reed beds, they need something. And then adjacent to that, they need either a hayfield or a silage field, which will grow up in the summer, which they can then move into. Uh, quite often they'll have the first brood in the early cover, and then the second nest will be in the kind of grass crop. Uh, so you need that as well. But that grass crop can't be cut, ideally, until the 1st of August, and even better later than that. And if it's cut in a friendly way, that, that, that's really important. So from the inside of the field out, pushing the young out to the edges, rather than cutting from the outside in, which was the traditional way, and you end up with all the concrete chicks stuck in that last bit of grass, and they all get cut up. A lot of conservation work went in with the crofters and farmers here, RSPB and others like SNH did a lot of work getting folk into schemes so that they farm in a, in a more concrete friendly way. Numbers went up quite rapidly to about 400 calling males in uh, about 2010. And then since then, we've held on to really big numbers. There's been a slight decline in recent years, but we still have a, a very strong population. The removal of scrappy, unproductive vegetation vital for early cover the faster growing of grass enabling earlier cutting, and the introduction of efficient cutting machines and methods devastated corncrake populations across most of Britain. But now, 
through the hard work of conservationists, ecologists and farmers, we know what we need to do to get the corn crate back. Would you like to walk out into the countryside near you and know somewhere in the undergrowth a mysterious brown bird has arrived for the summer and come midnight will be calling from the fields again. If we want, and why wouldn't we? We can bring a long lost sound from the summer pastures back. So many thanks to Jo for agreeing to discuss her work with me and I really encourage you to explore her work further which you can do on her website joekennedysound.com and on the wonderful podcast that she created with her partner Cathy Shaw called Nature Tripping 